<clears throat> Please turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 10. We will actually finish the book this evening. A good portion of this is really a list of names of, of those that had committed this great sin of which we've been reading about. Now, we need to understand something as we are looking at this passage. This is a very unique situation with very unique circumstances. We're looking at a national crisis that is going on here. We remember that when Ezra had gotten back to Israel, when he got back to Jerusalem, some of the leaders perhaps had come to him and said, the people of God have taken foreign wives. They have intermingled with the peoples of the nations. Now, we discussed first and foremost that the Lord is not, has, did not, rather, command his people not to marry uh, foreigners uh, because he didn't want to mix races and all that sort of thing. This is not what was in view. We'll look at a passage here in just a little bit in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as to why the Lord had commanded His people not to intermarry with the peoples of the nations. It was for a specific purpose, and it was actually specific tribes or specific nations that they were not to intermingle with. Now, I say that, and we talked about it briefly last time, because there are instances in which passages like this, or passages in Deuteronomy are used in order to try to justify the, the teaching or the view that you shouldn't marry uh, someone of a dif different ethnicity. That a, a white person shouldn't marry a black person, or a black person shouldn't marry a, a Hispanic person, or Hispanic a white person, blah, blah, blah. As, and you, know, on the, you can go on with that. That is not what's in view here. That is not justified within the Scripture. Uh, that is something that people who are looking for that sort of thing will find in passages like this, but that's not what it's teaching. We talked about the main reason why the Lord did not want them to intermingle with the peoples of the nations is because they would be led astray to serve other gods. The idea was do not marry people that are serving foreign gods, that are serving false gods, because when you do, they will lead you astray. That's why the Lord commanded what He did. Not because of some uh, eth ethnic boundaries or, or whatever. That's, that's not what's in view here. So anyway, Ezra comes back, understands that the people of God have indeed committed this great sin. And so what does he do? He mourns. They have, they have given their sons... In marriage, they have given their daughters in marriage. They have committed blatant rebellion against the Lord their God. Things that are directly in conflict with the Word of God. Now what's going to happen here is that the community is going to come together. And they're going to come to Ezra. And they're going to say, this is what we've decided to do in order to once again, be put back into a right standing with our Lord. We're going to divorce our foreign wives. We're going to put them away. We're going to put away the children born of them. And we will commit ourselves back to the Lord. Now, this is a very unique situation. This is a very difficult situation. Because we read in the scripture, especially in Malachi, Malachi sheds light on this issue as well as Nehemiah. In Malachi, the Lord specifically says, I hate divorce. And in reference to what he's saying, he's talking about how the people of God, the men of Israel, had put away their wives of Israel in order to marry foreign wives. Maybe that was the deal here. We know the Lord has made certain provisions for divorce in the case of adultery, in the case of marrying an unbeliever and the unbeliever deciding to depart. But this, this is not 
the same thing as to what we experience today. This should never be used, this text should never be used in order to try to justify divorcing another because you could serve the Lord better by not being married to them. That's not, that's not the case. The case here in, in Israel was that the entire nation had entered into covenant with God. They had agreed upon, everyone did, that we will abide by what you say, what you have commanded, your laws and your statutes, we will do them. And they agreed to the curses of it. If we disobey you, let these curses come upon us. They were God's covenant people. And it isn't like it is today because today our attitudes are, well, what goes on in our church is our business. What goes on in another church, well, that's, that's on them. We worry about us, we don't worry about them. That wasn't the case back then. There was national accountability that had to be taken here, that had to be adhered to. What happened in one city affected the entire nation. If one city was not being faithful to the Lord, then the rest were to take action. Because it wasn't as if we're an island unto ourselves. No, we are the complete collective people of God, and we are all to, to adhere to the laws and the statutes that we have all agreed upon. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, <clears throat> we read this. Beginning of verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone that is saying, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it is true in the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of the open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. And it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments which I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. There was national accountability here. What one city done affected the whole. So when you have a number of people that have disobeyed the Lord and have married foreign wives, and the idea that is being brought out here is they didn't marry converts to, to Israel. They have married foreign wives who are still serving their false gods. It wasn't as if you have a situation like it was with Ruth or with Rahab in which they had converted and, and had served the true and the living God and was able to intermarry with Israelites. That's not the case here. The implication is they're still serving their false gods and it's being tolerated among the assembly of people, among the assembly of Israel. So with, this, with these kinds of circumstances, this great sin that was occurring, idolatry once again, being tolerated, it required extreme measures. And as one theologian said, this might indeed be a genuine case of choosing the lesser of two evils. But never should this ever be taken, and we'll get more into that, but never should we use this passage of Scripture or the passage in Malachi or Nehemiah or any of those, in order to try to justify divorcing another because you feel like you can serve God more faithfully if you do. In fact, let's just look at this real quick on, on how we are to be. We know, of course, that Jesus says about divorce that it's permissible in the case of adultery. 
the Apostle Paul in Rome, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, beginning in verse 12. We'll just jump in verse 12. Well, excuse me, let's back up verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should, should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So the case here is, if you're married to an unbeliever, you remain with your unbelieving spouse unless he or she decides to depart the marriage. If the unbelieving spouse decides to depart the marriage, not you, then you are free to marry another, to let them go and to marry another. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, the Apostle says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So the Apostle Peter is saying the same thing. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse, you remain with them, and perhaps you may win them by your godly conduct and your faithfulness unto the Lord. There's no provision here that if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, that you yourself can decide, I'm out. If they decide to depart, then you are free. Not the other way around. So we need to establish that very clearly because, again, we don't want this text to be misused. And for those who do misuse it, we want to give them a right answer as to how it should be understood. So, these Israelites, in their disobedience, are now coming to Ezra with a plan. Here's what we can do. Here's what we're going to do in order to get back to a right standing with the Lord our God. We can either tolerate this evil, this open rebellion, and then receive the just wrath of God once again for our disobedience, or we can put them away, whether it's, it's foreign husbands, foreign wives, we put them away and we go back to doing what the Lord has commanded of us. We have entered into this sin and now we must deal with the consequences of it. I don't want to pretend at all that this is an easy passage or an easy scenario to look at because it isn't. And it's why I want to emphasize so much that these are unique circumstances that do not apply to us. We don't find ourselves in the same situation. This was unique to them, but there are things, of course, that we can learn from this as to how they got there in the first place and the grace of God that is provided here in order that they may once again repent of their sin and turn back to Him. So let's look at this passage together. Ezra chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 1. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And let us remember that this is indeed the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel 
for the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the lands. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoahina, the son of Elisahab. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore... Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. And let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jezaiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshulam and Shebathai, the Levite, supporting them. But the exiles did so. And Ezra the priest selected men who were the heads of the father's households for each of their for each of their father's households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brothers. Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah, they pledged to put away their wives and being guilty. They offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Of the sons of Emer, there were Hanani and Zebediah. And of the sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. And of the sons of Pashur, Eloani, Messiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad and Elisa. Of the Levites, there was Jozabad, Shemai, Kaliah, that is, Kalida, Bethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, there was Elishahib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. Of, of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, there were Ramiah, Isaiah, Melchijah, Majamin, Eliezer, Melchijah and Benaniah, and of the sons of Elam, Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, and of the sons of Zatu, Eloani, Elisahab, Madaniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azaza, and of the sons of Bebai, Jehoanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli, and of the sons of Bani, Meshulam, Maluk, and Adoniah, Jeshub, Sheil, and Jeremoth, and of the sons of Pahath Moab, Adna, Shalal, Beniah, Messiah, Mathaniah, Bazalel, Benui, and Manasseh, 
and of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malchijah, Shemaiah, Shemion, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemarah, and of the sons of Hashem, Madani, Matani, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shemai, of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Benaniah, Bedaiah, Shaluahai, Beniah, Merimoth, Elishib, Madaniah, Madanai, Jesu, Bani, Benuai, Shemaiah, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adoniah, Machnadabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shelemaniah, Shemariah, Shalem, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, there were Jehiel, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Maniah. All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Let's pray together. Gracious God, how we thank you for this portion of your word. Father, let us recognize the seriousness of the sin that was committed here. Help us to understand the things that indeed apply to us. Help us to remember that this were this was unique circumstances and that we should not ever take this passage of Scripture and use it as justification to do what we know we shouldn't. Let us work through this passage and to see your grace through it, the hope for the people of God in times of sin, what we can do in order to, to once again be put back into a right standing with you. Teach us, Father, throughout this passage that we may glorify you even more. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> National crisis. Ezra has returned home for this. Perhaps he had thought as he returned home, he was a Levite. He's a, he's a scribe. He's going to come back. He's going to teach the people of God. He knows that one generation has already went. The people of God have established themselves. They, they established the temple. They're worshiping. Let's go back and let's join in with them. And he gets back and he sees that they are once again in rebellion to the Lord their God. They are not keeping covenant. They are not being faithful. This was the whole reason that they were taken to Babylon in the first place. Because of their unfaithfulness to God. And here he's coming back and it's happening again. It's no wonder that he, would, that he went and he mourned. He, he tears out his hair, he, he rends his garment, he rips out part of his beard. He sits down and he mourns. He doesn't speak anything. He gets up at the time of the evening sacrifice and he makes his confession unto the Lord, including himself in it, for we have sinned greatly against you. And he just got there. But he's identifying himself with the people of God, of course. So while he's praying and making confession you see a great hope that is there. And this is indeed a great hope because this is open rebellion against the Lord your God, but yet there's still hope. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for restoration. There's indeed hope for the people of God that find themselves in terrible sin. As he's making confession before the Lord, before the house of God, perhaps he's in one of the outer courts of the temple. We read of a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathering to him from Israel, and they wept bitterly. They recognized the sin that they had committed, the rebellion that they had committed, the, the fierce anger of the Lord that they have incurred. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. And now, 
there is hope for Israel in spite of this. That is so important to understand. Even in unfaithfulness to God, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. There is hope for the people of God in spite of the sin that you find yourself in. And I say the, the people of God, the genuine believers, those that are truly converted, as, as me and Jason were talking earlier, and as he had said, no one is above great sin. No one is above falling into terrible sin. You can find yourself there before you know it. But what do you do when you find yourself there and you come to yourself and you, you recognize the great sin that has been committed? What do you do? You recognize the God that you serve and you recognize that there's still hope in spite of this. There is still hope for reconciliation in spite of the sin that you find yourself in. No matter how great the sin God's grace is even greater. For them, they had recognized what they had done. They come to Ezra, the one who is, is the scribe of God, who has come there, who has, who has made public confession on their behalf. As they, as they come to themselves and they recognize, we have sinned so greatly, we've been unfaithful to our God. Look at what He's done he has brought us out of Babylon. He's established us once again. And what do we do saying our thanks to him? We get back into open rebellion and we tolerate idolatry. And yet in spite of this severe sin, this isn't just a matter of marrying foreign wives. This is a matter of tolerating idolatry, serving other gods, being unfaithful to the Lord your God, not just by sinning, but by tolerating the, the, the wives of whom you're married to or, or others, maybe it's the men who's following after it, committing such abominations within the assembly of God's people. And yet in spite of that kind of gross, debaucherous sin in the eyes of God, we're saying basically, you're not valuable enough. I found something better. In spite of that, there is yet hope for Israel. There is hope even in the midst of such terrible sin. So here's the plan. And mind you, this is a plan by the community. This isn't Ezra coming up with this plan or trying to enact his own thoughts here. This is the assembly coming to him and saying, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Here's what we got to do. We have committed sin. Now we have to deal with the sin that we found ourselves in. And the way in order to restore ourselves back to the Lord our God is to do what he says in the law. The law that we never should have broke to begin with. We have to deal with the consequences. We have to deal with the difficulty of our sin and what and the consequences that it is that it is caused in the effect of, of, of the, the, the sin itself on the other people around us. We have to deal with it. These are very difficult times to be sure. So we're going to put away our foreign wives. Now, here's something to understand. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. <clears throat> Here's are the nations that they are specifically forbidden in order to intermarry with. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many of the nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you 
and he will quickly destroy you. These are the seven nations that they were forbidden to intermarry with. These are the very ones that they find themselves here intermarrying with. These are the enemies of Israel. These are the enemies of God. These are the ones that the Lord had, had cleared the way that the people of God could come into the land and to take the land that the Lord had for them. These are nations that are not just innocent people. These are wicked, evil nations that are committing child sacrifice on top of the fact that they're serving other gods. As, as we find in the prophets, they're making their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire in the sense that they're sacrificing them in such a horrible way. I forget the name of the god. I think it was Molech. The, the statue of this god had its arms out like this and they would kindle the fire underneath and it would be burning hot, these arms would, and then they would set their infants on these arms and let the infant burn to death as a sacrifice to their God. These are not innocent people. These are wicked people that the people of God have now found themselves intermarrying with. The very same ones that prior to their de deportation to Babylon the ones that they had intermingled with to begin with and started practicing those things that the Israelites themselves were partaking in the sacrifices of their sons and daughters to these foreign gods. This is why the, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people so much so that He allowed the Assyrians to come in to, to take the northern kingdom to deport them and then the Babylonians He raised up in order to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. Because they were sacrificing their children to foreign gods. They were committing idolatry. The people of God. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he, uh, he brought, raised up the Assyrians and he raised up the Babylonians in order to judge his people. That's the whole reason that they're in Babylon. And here again, Ezra comes home. And this is what they're doing again. That's why we have a, a, a need to remind ourselves of what God has done. They had forgotten within a couple of generations of the great works of God that he had done and the grace of God of bringing them home. That they would tolerate such evil once again. And yet in spite of that, there's hope. If there was hope for the people of God, no matter what you find yourself in, there's hope for you. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to have times that we are either tempted into great sin or we find ourselves in a great sin. There's still hope for the people of God. That's why, that's why we emphasize, especially when we're getting ready to take of the bread and the cup, we emphasize those certain passages of Scripture that His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's why we, we recite what, what the Apostle John says when he says, to his audience, he says, I pray that you do not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's why we say those things. To remind you that in spite of what you find yourself in, in spite of, the, of stumbling, in spite of saying things that you shouldn't or doing acts that you shouldn't, that there's still hope. There's still reason to hope in the God of your salvation. So they say to Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. This is what we need to do. We need you to take the lead here. We've already tolerated it. By our lack of leadership, we've allowed this to happen. So you, Ezra, you need to arise. And you need to do this. And we'll be with you. We'll be backing you. Be courageous and act. So what does Ezra do? He rises up and he makes the leading priests, the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do according to this proposal. Here's what you've said. Now, are you willing to take an oath to do that very thing? This is a very serious thing, especially when you read of those passages in the, in the Scriptures itself about taking oaths. It's better not to make an oath than to make an oath 
and break it. Because the Lord holds you accountable to that. And so that's what he brings them to do. Take this oath that you will do, to, do according to this proposal. So then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Elishab. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water. He's still mourning of the unfaithfulness of the people of God. And so they make this proclamation throughout all Judah, all Jerusalem, to the exiles to come to Jerusalem. Again, national crisis. We need everybody here for this. Because the wrath of God is, is on all of us. Because it's being tolerated. Again, national accountability. What happens in one city affects the whole. It's not like the way we think of things. We think of things like, you have no right to say that to me. You have no right to approach me with that. I, I do my own thing in my life. You have no place of coming to me for any of that. That's not how it is. At least that's not how it should be among the people of God. We hold each other accountable. Not to point out everybody's sin, but to hold each other accountable to say that we, we, we are to, to do these things together. We are to, to move toward the Lord our God. This is a walk that we are doing together. We are to walk in holiness and righteousness of truth, and we are to hold each other accountable to, to do this together. You're not an island unto yourself. You are collectively the body of Christ. The local church is the local body of Christ. We are part of the grand body of Christ, of course. You have the local church and you have the universal church. Those are things we can talk about later. If anybody doesn't show, because this is such a serious matter, your possessions should be forfeited and you are excluded from the assembly of the exiles. If you're not taking this seriously, this great sin that has been committed in understanding the wrath of God that is, that is being upon us here, His fierce anger, then you don't even need to be here. If you're not willing to come, then your possessions are gone, you have no inheritance, and go your way. So then what happens? You see, the, you see this hope for, for the people of God there. But then you have this whole communal repentance that occurs. That they, they do assemble. They again recognize the seriousness of their error. All the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat down in the open square before the house of God trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. So not only are they before the temple, they're sitting in the court, they're outside, and it's raining and pouring. They're not only trembling because of the fear that they have, because of the unfaithfulness that they, that they have done according to disobeying the Lord their God, but now you have this rain that only sets the scene even more so to, to depict the severity of what they've done. Is this just rain? Is it a storm? Is this, is this another cause for the fear of... Uh, that, that is intensifying the people as they see maybe the storm clouds and they see the lightning and hear the thunder. And this is a time that they are assembling to talk about how you have angered the Lord your God. This just helps set the scene even more and to demonstrate to the people of God how severe this sin is that you've committed. This is why the generations previously were killed and deported. And here you find yourself doing the very same thing. Ezra, as it is his responsibility as a leader who is truly trying to do what is right in the sight of God and to lead the people to do so, he stands up and he says, you have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. You've committed open rebellion to the gracious God who has called you to himself and has brought you into this land to be your inheritance. So make confession and do His will and separate yourselves from this. Here's, what, here, here's the things that we do when we find ourselves in those situations. We do the very same thing here. We make confession. We do what is written and we separate ourselves from whatever sin that we're committing. It's the very same thing. 
This is on a national level. Yes. But this is the very same thing that we, as the people of God, still do when we find ourselves in sin. We don't just continue in it because we think, well, I'm already here. I'm already doing it. There's no hope for me anyway. I've already done this terrible thing or I've committed this terrible thing. I've said these terrible things. There's no taking it back. Surely the Lord is not going to be gracious to me once more. And, and then you just continue doing whatever it is. That's the enemy deceiving you. What do you do in order to restore a right relationship with the Lord your God? You make confession. That's why the psalmist says, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You come brokenhearted over your sin. That's one reason, and I'll be honest with you, certain people that I know that are committing, that, that have fallen into sin or that are, that are, are ignoring the, the Lord their God, that's why when I pray for them, and I have done this for a long time, when I pray for them, the very thing that I'm praying for them is, Lord, break their heart over their sin. Bring them to the lowest point that they can only look up and to see you as the source of their hope and their joy. Break their heart over what they're doing. Because a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You make genuine confession. It's not flippant here. You don't just say, well, yeah, I did it. Um, I pray that you forgive me knowing that you're going to do it again the very next day and the very next day without even trying to fight against the temptation. That's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is I recognize the error of what it is that I've done. I recognize that it is such a grievous offense to a holy God. And I'm making confession to you that I need your help in order to overcome this because I can't do it myself. And so then the rest of the time, that very thing that you've been doing or the very thing that you've been saying, you are actively trying to, to fight against it so as not to fall into it. That's what repentance is. You're turning from it and going a different direction. Is there times in which you find yourself stumbling? Yes, you do. But the, the idea is you keep progressing away from it. You don't just keep indulging in it, thinking that it's God's job in order to forgive you or deceive yourself into thinking, well, since Christ died for all of my sins, he's died for past, present and future. And so I have a license here. Then you have to question whether or not you are a genuine believer if you have that kind of an attitude. Because Christ Jesus did not endure the wrath of his father in order that you may continue into sin and delight in it. He didn't suffer so greatly that we can just continue therein. He suffered so greatly that you can be forgiven and that through the Spirit of God who dwells within you, that you can turn from it. And that you have the ability in you now, not by your strength, but by the Spirit of God who is in you, to turn from that sin and to get away. Because the great promise of the Lord is that no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are capable. And with every temptation, he will make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it in the evil day. That is the promise of God. Not talking about your suffering. It's talking about your temptation. God makes a way of escape. And he provides you the power in order to overcome it because the spirit of God dwells in you. So you make confession. Turn from your sin and you do what is written. You do the very things that God says to do in his word. Separate yourself from it. If it's people in your life that's causing you to stumble, perhaps you need to get away from them. Maybe you need to get away from them for a time in order that you can build up the strength of whatever is happening. That when you do go back around them, that you won't be influenced by them. Or perhaps they will be influenced by you. Because the scripture does tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Separate yourself from it. Don't be one who indulges into the world, but be one who is separate from the world. Those are the very things that we learn of from our Lord Jesus.
as he has said this to the people of God, what do they do? It's almost like a, a recapturing of what the people of God did as they entered into covenant with God from the first time. That's right. As you have said, we will do. But here's their plan. There's many people here. It's a rainy season. We can't settle this in one or two days. Let the leaders represent us. Let the leaders go through all the, the cities investigating and then making judgment. Now, why would that be important? Again, we do find within the Scripture, we do find some very prominent people within the Scripture who have married foreign wives, and yet it was not... The, the anger of the Lord was not kindled against him. You have Moses, by the way, in Deuteronomy 7, that is saying to the people of God, don't intermingle with the, these particular nations because you're going to bring the wrath of God on you. And he married a woman from Ethiopia. He didn't marry an Israelite. You have Joseph. He married the daughter of an Egyptian priest. You have Abraham, his second wife. She wasn't part of his family. You have Ruth, who marries Boaz, who is also in the uh, who, who's descendant of Ruth and Boaz was David, and then the greater descendant from Ruth and Boaz was our Lord Jesus. Before them, you have. Rahab. Rahab, who was in Jericho when the people of God were coming into the land and were sacking the city. Rahab was converted to be a believer of the one true God. And she's also included in the genealogy of our Lord. So's Tamar. So it's not as if there's, there's, a, there's a law here to say there's no room whatsoever to marry anyone of foreign descent. It's just that you can't marry these particular ones of the seven that we read of in Deuteronomy 7. So it's no wonder that an investigation needs to happen. They need to analyze each individual marriage as to what has occurred are they part of the enemies of God? Are they still serving their foreign gods? Or are they serving the God of Israel? Are they serving Yahweh? So it's not as if they write down all the names. These are all the ones that have done this very thing. Bring them all here. There's an investigation that needs to take place first. It's very evident that the ones that they did marry at least perhaps the majority, were indeed serving their gods of their land. In the list of offenders from verse 18 on, there's about 84. I think that's right. 84 that had committed this that are listed here as the offenders who have married the particular ones of the nations that they were forbidden to marry Investigation needs to be done. They're willing to do it. They want to do what is right in the sight of God. And so it took a number of months for this to happen. To do a thorough investigation among all those that had married foreign wives. And then we have the offenders. Notice how these are listed. It says, among the sons of the priest. And then you have... The rest that are listed there after of the Levites, of the singers, of the gatekeepers. You're having all of these that are listed from the leaders first on down to those who minister within the temple. Then you get to the laity. When you get to the laity, these are, are those that are, are not ministers. They're not Levites. They're within the people of Israel, of course. But why does he begin that way? Why does he begin by pointing out to the priests first, and then the Levites, 
then the gatekeepers, the singers, all of that. Because these are the leaders. These are the ones that were supposed to be, again, leading the people into truth, leading the people to do what is right according to the Lord. And when you find the leaders themselves that are committing these, these terrible acts of rebellion, then what are the people going to do? People are going to look and say, well, if our leaders are doing that, then it must be okay. That's why there's such an emphasis, and that's why there's so many people today, some solid pastors and theologians that will constantly say, as the pulpit goes, so the church goes. Because what the leadership allows within the church, or what the leadership does not allow in the church, influences the rest of the people of God. That's why for leaders, there is, there is an accountability there. There is a standard that, that, that the leaders of a church should, should strive even more so for holiness, not to be better than anybody else, but to set an example. An example for everyone else. We claim that we are walking faithfully with the Lord. We claim that, that we're trying to, to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Then what we do in our life should reflect what we're saying in order that the other people of God will be influenced to do the same. That we're all doing it together. As the pulpit goes, so the church goes. For these here, their influence influenced the rest of the people of God to do the very thing that God had not allowed. That's one reason why the Apostle Paul probably uh, would say that, that a new convert isn't to be a pastor, isn't to be an elder. You need, they need to be seasoned. They need to be, to be learned in the Scripture, and not only just learned in the Scripture to gain a bunch of knowledge, but to, be, to, but to put into practice these things, to live a life that is, that is genuine according to the Word of God, to do what is written. It is very important how a leader presents themselves to the rest of the church. If we're tolerating of evil things, then how's it going to affect everybody else? Well, if they're allowing that, if they're doing that, it must be okay for me to do that. And then what happens then? Then you have the entire church being influenced to go the opposite way rather than walking worthy of the calling by which we've been called. So here's some things that we can look from this. Again, unique circumstances. But understand this, as we're learning here, that sin affects the entire community of believers. It's not just a, a situation where what you do in your life only affects you. We are to hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable for godliness to try to keep the church pure. And how do we do that? We preach and teach the Scriptures faithfully. When you look at the Scots Confession in the 1500s, they put in their confession where we get the three marks of a true church. The true preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the correct administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Church discipline is not a weapon to be used uh, against people just because you don't agree with them. It's to be used in a situation that when you find people who are actually committing offense, that you implement church discipline to them, not to try to get them to, to just run out of the church or to push them out of the church, but to get them to repent, to make confession, to do what is written, and to separate themselves from whatever it is because we are a church body together. We are a church family. And we are to, that's a sign of love to come to somebody and say, you know, this isn't right of what's going on in your life. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? If you're unrepentant, then we have to implement the leaders into this. Sin affects the entire community. Again, as we've been talking about, leaders will set the standard of what is permissible in the church. That's why, as leaders, there's a great responsibility for us to guard ourselves and to guard our hearts and to pray for one another and to hold each other accountable that we can try with, with as much might that we can with, with, with as, 
as much of ourselves as we can in order to do what is right. Hearing and obeying the Word of God, as we find here, can put a situation right. When you find yourself in the situation in rebellion against God, committing offense against God by indulging whatever sin, if we would just turn ourselves back once we understand the severity of it, turn ourselves back to the Word of God and do what is written. Because that's how we come back into fellowship with God. That's why the opening scripture when Jesus says, Abide in me. If you abide in me and my word abides in you. Abide in my love. How do we abide in his love? By keeping his commandments. So we turn ourselves back to do the things that are pleasing to God. What shall I do whenever this happens? You do what God says. But never forget this that you find throughout this whole thing, as difficult as it is, is that God's grace provides forgiveness. God's grace toward you, regardless of what happens, provides forgiveness. Because grace has been granted to you through Christ Jesus. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that we can come boldly before the throne of God to receive grace in our time of need. You have a God who has bought you through the blood of His Son, who has made you His own, His own child. And He provides grace when we sin terribly. When we sin little, when we sin great. Do we have to deal with the consequences of the things that we have done? Especially when it, in, when it includes other people? Yes, we do. We have to deal with that. But God's grace is with us. His favor is still upon us because of Christ. And His forgiveness is there. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And His mercies are new every morning. Because of His great faithfulness to us. Even when we find ourselves being unfaithful. We serve a gracious God. Who provides everything that we need in order to come back into a right relationship when we find ourselves straying away. That's why we sing of that. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. We'll take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's why we, we sing that. As, as we sang the Rock of Ages song, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. Those songs have such hope and grace in them. That's why we recount them. That's why we sing them. Because it reminds us of the gracious God that we serve. A broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. He desires restoration. He desires reconciliation with his own. If we will just put the enemy down and what he tries to deceive us with and turn our eyes back upon Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, once again, we thank you for the grace that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he paid our penalty in full. We are privileged to come into your presence, not because of ourselves, but because of him. We receive such a privilege of being <clears throat> children of God. What a grace it is to be able to come before your throne of grace, even after sinning so greatly. How you restore us. As you restored many within the scripture who committed great offenses. Thank you so much, Father, for your forgiveness in Christ. Help us each day, Lord, to remind ourselves of the cost of our salvation, of what you've done for us, lest we forget, lest we be tempted by the world. Let us remember in our temptations that you provide a way of escape through the power of the Spirit who works within us so we can overcome it. Father, help us to walk worthy of our calling and always look to you, never to be deceived to thinking that you have rejected us. For your word tells us you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. He is our down payment. He is our pledge. Let us remember these things. Father, help us each day. 
let the light of Christ shine from among us and be influencers of others. Help us to put into practice what the calling of God has made us. So you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed. Thank you.